I use the word activism because it's a shortcut. I think a lot of, for me, what it really is, is engaged spirituality. Because it can be traumatizing and terrifying to be involved in really difficult situations. But this engaged spirituality is a really different essence to it. Um, and when I remember that, it's a really different experience, which is to show up for your wholeness and my wholeness and this ultimate wholeness that's holding both of us. I've also found myself getting really angry doing activism and like, wait, this wasn't the point. The point was liberation. Why are we struggling to, to find joy? You know, like the, the goal is to, is a world where people are, are have liberation, experience liberation. And, and if we're constricted, then what are we doing? to be angry. I don't want to be angry. I want to be angry when it's helpful, but I don't want to be tight and twisted up in that anger. You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Anna Talhami. Anna is a poet, storyteller, interdisciplinary artist, activist, and sacred provocateur. Her work has appeared internationally in mediums from stage to television, and she continues to create and perform in various capacities across the globe. While innovating in creative spaces, she has also created, organized, and participated in peace building and collective trauma healing in the United States, Middle East, and Europe. In this episode, Anna and I discuss her creative work and its connection with activism as a form of engaged spirituality. We talk about her peace-building work in Palestine, her care for words within the importance of storying and listening, and how art and the sacred intersect to create pathways of healing and restoration. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome to the Theopoetics podcast. Um, I have a special guest with me today. Anna Talhami is here. Um, and she is a poet and a storyteller, uh, an interdisciplinary artist and writer, uh, as well as one of my favorite descriptors, uh, a sacred provocateur. So welcome, Anna. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. No problem. Uh, so let's start off just by hearing a little bit about who you are. Where, where do you come from? What are you up to in the world? What's forming you and, and shaping you? Okay, wow, I love all those questions. Um, so I mean, you covered a lot in your introduction. Um, I, I really come from writing first, storytelling first. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think that's true. <laughs> if I think about it, I probably come from a lot of places first, but um, professionally and sort of showing up in the world, I think I first did that through playwriting and storytelling and seeing the power of words and the stories we tell and how we, we can impact people, um, as well as how we are impacted by how we hear stories and who's telling them and how they're told. So that's really impacted so much of what I do, um, whether that's peace building for a just peace or creating television, working with uh, advocacy campaigns, working one-on-one -on -one with people. I think a lot of it really is centered in both the sacred and our connection to the sacred and our understanding of how we show up in our story and how our stories are showing up. And what are some of the primary ways that that understanding has led you to work in the world? Like, what, do you, what is it leading you to? How is it leading you to engage and create? What environments do you find yourself in these days? Sure. Um, 
let's see. I find myself in a bunch of different <laughs> converging environments. Um, I think I've heard a few different questions in there, so I'm not sure which one you want an me to answer first, but um, do you want to talk me to talk about the environments? Sure, sure. Yeah, just your work. I mean, where has it led you to, to engage in the world? And Sure. Um, it's led me to a bunch of different places. I think right now, I've been surprised that each time it sort of shows up in a different way or it evolves or it builds. Um, so I started performing poetry over the last few years, which I hadn't really done in a long time, shown up and performed in public, which is, you know, very, it can be a very vulnerable and scary thing. Some people just, it comes naturally, really adore it. I just felt like I needed to figure what that out, what, figure out what that was, um, to tell my own stories and my own interpretations in public. And... From doing that, I started to be invited to actually participate on a visual way, which has been really sweet for me because I also am an artist, but I don't center that in my work. I don't like I contribute as a visual artist to of, of different places, but I don't center that as like my focus. Um, but I do love it, and I think that's another way to storytell um, to tell these stories through visual. But what recently I've been actually getting to do all at once, which is to take extracts of my poetry and of my words and see them as text art um, in gallery spaces and museum spaces. And I recently got to do it this year, a few different places, but one of the, one of the places that was pretty, like one of the first things I did this year with that was at the Elena Museum, um, which is dedicated to the African diaspora and they're in Oakland and they invited a group of artists who are not part of the African diaspora to show up in solidarity as part of the Reclaim Our Community Festival. And they created this room. Um, the Alliance Den was the, in partnership with them, and the Alliance Den created a bunch of rooms uh, for solidarity and for community healing. And they had specifically a room that was called the Healing Room. And so we created this installation of pretty large artwork that was essentially just words blown up really big. But, you know, I got to think about the font and the graphics and how do we present and what are the words that we're choosing um, and play with that sort of convergence of the visual and the verbal. And then how does that show up in a space? Because we'd have these words and it was really fun to watch people gravitate, like say, oh, this is, this is me. Like, this is, you've totally summed me up in this two sentences, or this one is me, or now I'm really thinking about this. And so people were taking pictures next to these words blown up that were as big as them, you know? So there were these like extracted sentences from poetry or phrases, and people were taking pictures with what they identified with. And that wasn't necessarily, we figured that might happen, but that wasn't its first purpose. And so it was fun just to see that evolution also of, you know, you take the words off the page, you put them into the world, you invite people into this space and connect with words in a space and then watch the way they make it their own. And then they bring it back onto online, right? It goes away out of this interacted space and back into online, but then we interact another way there. So it, that's kind of a way I've enjoyed seeing things play. You know, the way we all get to make our stories our own and how do we interact with each other's stories. 
Yeah. So I'm curious where that began for you. I mean, you said recently you started to do poetry and writing in more public spaces, but, but for you, where did words start to become significant and where did you start to, uh, to, to engage with them in a new way? Um, I mean, I've always been writing. I've always been talking, <laughs> you know, I was the kid that was told to stop talking so much when I was little. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know that I ever really got the hang of how to stop talking, um, but I'm trying my best sometimes. Uh, <laughs> well, this is a good space to talk, so that's what we're doing. Yeah, it's not fun. It works out. You find the places where you belong. Um, yeah. So yeah, I've just been writing, and since I was a kid, and I also really loved performing as a kid. Um, before there was like a self consciousness about it that I think as adults sometimes we start to get. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's how that all started. And I wrote plays as a kid. And um, like, I don't know, when I was 12 or something, we had some statewide contest and um, the winners got to direct and see their work up on a stage. And that was really exciting for me. Uh, I think that did two things or did multiple things, which was one, I got to see my work performed and then I got to see it impact people. Then I got to speak with people after of how it impacted them. And even though I was a kid, I was writing a lot about things that were deeply personal and difficult for me. And then meeting other preteens and teenagers who were impacted by it was really special. And then I think also as an adult, it stayed with me is what happens when we give platforms to each other, when we support each other and having platforms to tell our stories and share them. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me like the interconnectedness of our world right now and the ways in which we're sharing words through various social media platforms has just become such, so commonplace, you know, that it's almost something we don't even have to really think about. And um, because we're so overconnected, you know, and so, and yet it sounds like you bring this, this level of intentionality to, to words and, and cultivating um, like you said, even with that space that you were curating this, this engagement with them that, that invites healing, uh, and invites wholeness. And so, uh, as you continue to just experiment and with, with poetry and writing as a means to healing, um, in various ways, you said, uh, you had, you had told me before our conversation that you have been performing and publishing and in public spaces. Um, what, what kinds of, um, freedoms are being formed in you as as you start to release your art out into the world and and what tell me about tell me about why art has become the the means for you and, and if there's a joy there or anything as you engage in it sure what freedoms you said something like that was totally amazing what was it what freedoms have like unlocked in you or something what was yeah that? what what are, what are you finding as you release your art into the world that what is freeing you sort of what what joy is is there in that in that work for you yeah um gosh so much i think that a lot of times if we're struggling there there can be a kind of shame around that uh, it's different in different traditions and different cultures but overwhelmingly sort of it seems to be to at least in my perspective is in our dominant culture that the one at least I'm, I'm personally living in, um, but you know, in the United States that there's this emphasis on, I don't think it's overt, but there's this inferred emphasis around shame around our struggles. You know, there's this uh, positivity campaigns and it's so important to stay positive. And I a hundred percent am about positivity and about how we 
you know, the way that we, if we keep a positive mind, it's easier to go about life. Sure. And there's so much struggle that's real and genuine and isn't going to be healed if we're insistent on pretending it isn't there. Right. And so to me, speaking about it, um, speaking about my personal struggles has really shaken free, like so much um, tension with it. Because often we hold this shame, whether it's, you know, self-inflicted or from other people that, that we're not supposed to struggle or whatever happened to us is somehow our fault. Um, and that the more we're able to talk about our struggle or our suffering, and the more we're able to see, hear each other's and realize like, we're not that different. We're not that special in that way. We can, I've personally found get, getting really free on my um, attachment to a lot of pain and a lot of shame and there's a freedom to talk about it in a way that where we don't um, pathologize ourselves as much for the way that we've been impacted. Right. Yeah. One of, one of the themes that sometimes comes up in the conversations on this podcast is uh, the liberative power of storytelling, you know, and, and especially for a lot of marginalized people in the, in the context that you already mentioned here in America, you know, there, there is something about being able to stand in your truth and speak your story that is thoroughly liberative. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I totally just resonate with what you were sharing in terms of our culture's ineptness and inability to really deal with shame and, and, and grief, sometimes systemic grief, systemic shame um, yeah. about our history. And so, um, and I think we yeah. do that with other cultures. I mean, I find that in peace building, we do that in the way that we re reframe other people's stories without hearing their version. Yes. You know, it, it just carries yeah. out and carries out and carries out. And people are saying, um, you know, I'm being negatively impacted and we're, we get defensive or we don't want to hear about it. Um, that happens in marginalized communities. It happens in, in this country, but it also happens all around the world. And I've been hearing, you know, speaking of language, right? Because that's what we're talking about is how much language makes a change. People starting to Yes, speak about people as marginalized, but also speak about them as targeted. Because even the language, right, marginalization is this idea that you're pushed to the margins. And if we don't clarify that what the word is targeted, people are being targeted to have less access, to have less resources. It's not an accident. So yeah. the idea that we, we shift this language around that and shift our, open our space to be able to hear other people's pain and suffering. So, yeah, I think that the more that we are able to speak about our own stuff, essentially, the, and the more that we're able to dissolve shame around it, the more we can show up for other people and their pain and their struggles and their marginalization and their targeting, right? Because we're not so defensive of like, what about me? What about me? Um, and that's also part of it. You know, I, I really want to emphasize that I think we should <laughs> we should heal ourselves for the sake of healing ourselves. But there's so many... There's, there's, there's so many important ways that we also show up for each other with more ease and more clarity. If we are clear on like, what is our stuff? What is our trauma? Hmm. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned earlier that you're seeing some of this play out in your own peace building work. And I know that you you're an activist as well. So could you, could you talk about what you're doing in the world that is peace building work and what you're seeing in that? Sure. Um, so we started with um, 
so I was born in the U.S. My husband was born in Palestine, and um, I come from ancestrally Jewish. I am Jewish. Um, but what we have found is so much of the Palestinian struggle, the, is the Muslim struggle um, in the U.S., the targeting of Arab communities is so interwoven with the narratives we have about them. Um, and the way that Orientalism shows up and the way that um, we let stereotypes keep happening in the media, in television and film. And so part of that was to one step at a time start to shift what, are, what is that narrative, to change the narrative. And so we started this project called the Behebek Project. Behebek means I love you in Arabic. Hmm. Uh, we started around 2016 and um, the website is this says I love you.org and we made shirts and bags and a whole bunch of other stuff that says, you know, stickers whatever that you can stick everywhere that has the Arabic language and a heart. Um, and it says Behebek written in Arabic and has a heart and says, this says I love you. And um, part of what motivated that was when we started, there were a series of people who were being kicked off planes for texting. I love you in Arabic to their family members before they took off. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's like hard to say even without getting choked up because it's, I mean, it's, it's angering, but it's also heartbreaking. Um, yes. But that's like where we've come to is that people are saying I love you and other people are freaking out and accusing them of terrorism. Um, I mean, what a jump. <laughs> so we just, that's what was the impetus for that. That was one of the major the major things that happened to us or happened um, that inspired us was we just, it happened. You wouldn't believe how many times it's happened. I mean, if you look it up, there's so many times and we've documented it and we've, we've kept um, a whole list of them. And we've, we've started talking to a bunch of the people actually that have been kicked off of these planes. Um, and then, you know, there's one story that people found sort of humorous, which was an Italian guy, an Italian guy was writing math and he got kicked off because someone thought it was, Arabic plans for terrorism. So again, it's like, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he looks Mediterranean, whatever. Um, wow. Wow. So we're just like at this point where the connectivity of, of, I mean, I don't want to, the connectivity of like phenotypes and language and really having no idea what we're doing and no idea what we're talking about, but just coming from fear. And, and wreaking havoc and creating terror um, for so many people is devastating. And so that was, it started really small where we actually, it wasn't even a thing at first where we just made these bags that said, um, this, this says I love you, you know, so that when you see Arabic, you start associating it with all these beautiful loving phrases that are deeply embedded in Arabic culture and Arab culture. And, um, and we also got, you know, a lot of beautiful response from people, of course, who spoke Arabic or, you know, um, and then around the same time, there was the Muslim ban. And so we made these giant posters that said, this says I love you. And we handed them out at airports for people um, at the San Francisco airport to welcome people. Uh, so when you had at that time, especially it's still happening, but when, at that time you had, you know, all these people shocked to be arriving to be interrogated when they came to see their families. And so we wanted that when they finally came out, 
to see the head to see people holding the sign and then in turn also teaching each other what they're holding, what it means so that we're all in yeah. this conversation together. Um, and then we decided we'd give a percentage to a refugee um, resettling group. And then friends of ours um, who are also Palestinian immigrants, they met a whole group of people who were Syrian refugees who had just arrived. And so what happened was these friends that had met these group of people just reached out to us and said, why don't you just give the money directly to families? We started grassroots fundraising and connecting teams and of, of people um, who had extra resources to come together, raise enough money, and then support a family for a few months while they got off, off their feet. And then we would work with them on the rest of the resources. Um, and then it also, the idea of that was also like building community. So people met each other, they were welcomed, they were, you know, they met the people that were contributing to them financially. So they understood that this wasn't charity and this wasn't some abstract idea, you know, that they're to say like, you know, we had people meeting them and saying like, I, I just want you to know that I'm so glad you're here. And like, this is, this is for me as well to get to offer you some more ease in your arrival. And so then communities start forming. Um, so that's some of it. And a lot of that also, the way we went about it was um, that a lot, that the majority of the people that work with the Bahabek Project are, are immigrants and that we, we defer to immigrants. You know, like I'm, I'm not going to say what an immigrant needs more than, more than them. The idea yeah. It's really, it's run in almost a reverse way than a lot of organizations. Um, and so it's really driven by the folks who have experienced it recently firsthand um, and can speak to, speak to that um, and, yeah. and build friendships, you know? Right. Well, I mean, that strikes me as such a beautiful path from this idea of just transforming people's perception of words or language um, and using just loving or benevolent language um, that has led through to this now connective engagement and relationship building and community building with, with immigrants um, in that way and refugees. And, and um, I think that speaks to the power of words. You know, when people, when we start to reframe our engagement with words um, the, what that can lead to is, is transformative. And, and I know that you, I mean, I don't know if it's been through the Behebic project or, or, or not, but, um, but that you've also done some actual work on the ground in Palestine, um, as a representative for the nonviolent compassionate, um, communication community, right. In the community of Palestine. So, um, what's, what's that been like as you've, as you've been there on the ground, right in the, in the midst of the tension? Yeah, um, I mean, so I work with Palestinians and, and Israelis, and I also work in the U.S. with the Jewish community um, and in their relationship to Palestine. Um, so Jews who are not Palestinian, because there are Palestinian Jews, and sometimes we, we don't actually know that. That's another way that stories get lost. Yeah, yeah. But that Jews who, are, who see themselves as separate and understanding their relationship. Um, 
So as far as on the ground with Israel and Palestine and Israelis and Palestinians, um, I've both done stuff on the ground there as well as support people from here um, and what they need. My goal, my hope is that I show up with whatever is asked of me. I'm really not interested in, um, <laughs> in some wild plan in my head of how I'm going to make peace. I think that there's been enough people who have done that um, for good and for damage. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And I really can't emphasize enough how I want to live in a world where we listen to the people most impacted by what they need to what they need. Um, so some folks have asked for facilitation around, um, around having really difficult conversations and around being heard and being seen. And that's what I do. And that's what, um, my husband and partner does um, and is really just listen to like, what is it that you want and need out of this? And is this, an, if it's in alignment with, with me, um, then I will show up and help facilitate that. Um, so being an American representative, um, I think being Jewish sometimes helps, sometimes hinders, but really showing up as someone who's, um, who also speaks, English to communities that don't speak Arabic, um, that sort of thing. But really navigating these difficult conversations and these, these stories essentially that um, we have about each other and the lived experiences that are happening. Um, so so closed circle meetings between um, Israelis and Palestinians sitting down and talking to each other. Um, sitting down with Palestinians and asking and hearing what it is that they want me to like deliver as messages to Jewish communities in the U S. Um, yeah. So a lot of things like that. Um, and then that's evolved also into training, training the trainers, uh, working with peace builders and understanding, um, what they're, <laughs> say what they're in for, but <laughs> to understand, um, their participation and their, because a lot of times, you know, people come in and they want to leverage their own privilege and that's such a beautiful thing, but it can also be extremely damaging um, in terms of, you know, wielding what we're sure is the right way to do things or centering ourselves or um, even the language that gets used. I think, you know, you'll, <laughs> I can't help it. That's who I am. Right. I'm going to go back to the language, but yeah. Yeah. Recently, you know, something that's come up a lot is the language that's used around Palestinians. Um, people are constantly asking Palestinian peace builders and, you know, people who are interested in, in being involved in, in coming to these peace conversations who are Palestinian. I just constantly hear uh, American and uh, Israeli and international people asking Palestinians, like, how did you come to peace? How did you come to peace? How did you go from hate to love. And I've never really heard, or very, very, very rarely heard anyone ask me that. No one asks an American, or uh, very rarely does someone ask like a Jewish American, how did you go from hate to love? The assumption is we just show up loving. And huh. um, yeah, it's weird, right? Um, yeah. Unless you're like overtly, have been overtly talking about being hateful. You know what I mean? Like that's its own thing. But within people that are already in the peace building community, there's this focus on 
the transformation of Palestinians, and it's so condescending to be blunt. Right. Um, right. That not seeing like this is a, just another person, just like you. And why shouldn't they be peaceful? Why would they not be interested in peace? Just like you're interested in peace. Um, and that comes from all of these anti-Arab narratives and anti-Palestinian narratives. Um, you know, where people ask me a lot, like, oh, when you're in Palestine as a Jew, like, how do they treat you? And it's such a funny question to me because it's never even come up. Like, people are like, oh, you're Jewish, interesting. Like, whatever. Like, nobody, it's, nobody has a negative association with me as a random person that wants to connect. It's, it's yeah, they're much larger and about, um, you know, the impacts of, of occupation and those sort of things. So, yeah. uh, so I just am really, uh, I think that's been something that, that I've really been trying to change in, in, in our own communities and taking accountability for that of like how I, I want my own community or people that I identify with to show up um, for others. Hmm. Yeah. It sounds like not, I'm hearing again, the theme of story come up of, of people being able to share story, but I wonder what posture of listening might also be important in those kinds of environments. So, so that connection can be made. Are you see, I mean, what do you see in, in the, in the connecting between, um, those two peoples there in, in terms of not only the speaking and the intentionality of words and allowing people to speak for themselves and, and not projecting or assuming, but also listening. Yeah, so um, I have trained and participated in a lot with the Zen Peacemakers and um, with the Center for Council. And those are two groups that work a lot with each other as well as separately. Um, and Zen Peacemakers is a lot about bearing witness to places of, of community trauma or collective trauma. And um, centric for counsel is a lot about showing up in circles for each other and what that looks like in a way that echoes the way many of our different traditions have done that for centuries, uh, no matter where we're from. Usually there's some sort of history of a circle. Um, and that has informed a lot of what I do, which is about, um, which is about in the, um, in Center for Council or in, in Council and in Circles, a lot of the emphasis is on speaking from the heart and listening from the heart. So that also means being spontaneous. It means being spontaneous in our listening as well. And it means being present, being centered, being in the moment. So that if you're talking and you say something that creates a lot of pain for me to let myself own that, name it for myself, you know, and quietly <laughs> and put it to the side and let you keep talking. And I'm not talking about if there's like great obvious damage being done. That's a little different. Sure. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times, and what, what is a great damage, right? That's arguable. But a lot of times somebody says something and instantly someone's like, no, that's not true. Or that's not how it is. Or how dare you say that? Or, but what about us? And my life sucks or whatever. <laughs> and, um, to instead just put all of that away for a minute and just show up for you and hear you and hear you from the heart. And if you're speaking from the heart and I'm listening from the heart um, and I'm not making assumptions that something terrible is going to happen unless I talk instantly, right? Like if I don't need to jump in instantly and correct you, but just hear you, then so much has the ability to change. Um, so a lot of it is about listening from the heart and, um, 
nonviolent communication and Center for Nonviolent Communication has a lot of other things that are built in, and um, which is really about talking from needs and feelings. So there's a lot of different places where I've gotten tools and training um, that I admire. One of the big things is not knowing, and that's such a gorgeous concept. The idea that we have no idea. We have no idea. Um, and we don't know what we don't know. And I think I actually spoke about this at the Theopoetics pa panel a little bit, but to me, like two of my favorite phrases are thank you and I don't know. This idea of gratitude and the idea of, but not just an idea, the expression and the understanding of, of, being, of gratitude and the suspension of both disbelief and belief. You know, yeah. that, that I really have no idea. And so much of what I think I know, I have no idea. And so much of what I'm telling you right now, by next year, I might feel totally differently about. Right. Well, I mean, those two ideas of gratitude and unknowing strike me as actually really inviting pathways to perhaps talk about the sacred a little bit. You mentioned earlier that behind a lot of this work with words and poetry and, and peacemaking and healing is this idea of the sacred. So I'm curious for you, um, without getting into, again, I, I don't need to start to unpack my understanding of it or, or what unknowing means to me or anything like that, but I'm just curious for you, um, in what ways you see the sacred, or maybe perhaps in what ways you understand the sacred yourself or unknow the sacred yourself, and then um, just how that informs your work. Yeah, unknow the sacred, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think um, for me, I have a connection in something I would call God, and I'm also really careful about that word because it can really turn people off. Yeah. It's so important to me that people show, like, are invited and welcome to this conversation, uh, regardless of their association with that word and with faith. Um, you have no faith at all and, um, and show up to this. So that's, that's super important to me. Um, and at the same time, I think that, yeah, that sacred is beyond knowing. It's, you know, anytime we talk about it, it, it sort of protects itself. It, it folds in on itself and it finds new covering. But um, ultimately, this understanding of our, of our wholeness, um, or depending on the tradition of our wholeness and our emptiness, um, but that ultimately, there's something greater than all this. And something greater than individually, and that's, there's something, there's, and that's the collective, and there's even something greater than the collective. And um, that we, you know, that we can show up to wonder to this, you know, um, to have wonder and have awe and see our wholeness that if we're broken in certain ways or our community has been broken in certain ways, to know that ultimately we're connected to something so big and so powerful and beyond our comprehension that is glorious and gorgeous and um, ours. Yeah. And and not any more mine than yours and without boundaries. And, you know, I mean, I always get worried when I say without boundaries. I'm a big fan of boundaries in this world, in this life, in this form. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's huge, right? But to understand that ultimately there's, there's no beginning and end to 
you know, where my country starts and your country starts or, or there's no, it just, that's something that we've created and we have to work with what we've created and deal accordingly. But that ultimately there's this beautiful, powerful isness. Yeah. It's beyond. And I'm hearing moreness too, that there's, that there's a, there's a moreness. There's a, there's a beyondness to that too. And, and that it perhaps even the, the correct response is gratitude to, to that sense, to that sensibility that the mystery is something that we participate in. Um, yeah. And that's the delineation, right? I don't, I would never ask anyone to be grateful for suffering or to be grateful for their miserable experience. I think we need mm. to show how we need to deal with those things. How, yeah. how but when we're grateful for that ultimate, um, a lot of other things become easier to work with. Mm. Yeah. I mean, in my own journey with suffering, you know, I think gratitude can be a grounding impulse, not for the suffering itself, obviously, or anything like that, but, but as um, perhaps a conversation partner um, and, mm -hmm. and otherness, uh, you know, a moreness that is, it's not just the suffering, but there's also this other element that's part of the fabric too, and, and can be carried um, perhaps even alongside um, if one can find, find that. Um, Absolutely. I, Even the yeah. suffering can draw us back in, right? Because we can, if I have suffered something, then I can empathize with your suffering. And if I don't have that much empathy, there's a chance it's because either I haven't had that experience or I haven't learned how to hold space for yours or mine. <laughs> um, and so there is something, you know, I don't wish suffering on anyone, but there is something where some, you know, where I can say, I can find that crack, you know, where the light comes in and see that, that this pain has opened up a connection. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think too, the language there that, that comes up in me when you say that is compassion, you know, that, that, that word literally means, you know, sort of suffering with someone else. It's not, it's not just, you know, it's not just, empathy in the sense that oh I feel you it's like it's a deeper it's like a bowel thing I feel like you know it's it's being able to say yeah we're in it we're in it together um and yeah and and that's that's so human you know it's it's just a part it's a part of who we are and I and I think in the context of maybe our larger conversation today around healing and and connectiveness and and words that 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 human thread is something that perhaps underlies our our divisions you know are the ways in which we we don't listen well and we speak over and you know and we don't we don't only marginalize but you know we target and and uh i i wonder what it would look like for us to continue in our work in such a way that we're highlighting the undergirding you know mm, yeah i think it's so important you know um a lot of, I'm, I'm even the word, you know, I use the word activism because it's a shortcut and really my, uh, I think a lot of, for me, what it really is, is engaged spirituality, you know? Seeing, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and that's to me, it's more important and it also builds resilience. And I think a lot of times if I'm burnt out, it's because I'm, I'm actually more in the activism, the me-ism and less in the, um, not even just the meism, the getting tossed around, right? Because it can be 
traumatizing and terrifying to be involved in really difficult situations. Yeah. Um, but that also, but this engaged spirituality is a really different essence to it. Um, and when I remember that, it's a really different experience, which is to show up for your wholeness and my wholeness and this ultimate wholeness that's holding both of us. Yes. Oh, I, I, I couldn't love that framing more, the idea of engaged spirituality. And, the, and the, the word I was thinking of when you said that was wholeness. That's one of my sort of centering um, concepts. And so, yes, I love that. Um, I, and I think, too, that like activism needs to be compassion-based. It needs to be wholeness-based. Otherwise, even in our, our putting ourselves out there, we, we can be traumatized in such a way that we become debilitated. And, you know, and so it's not healthy to even to do that without that framing. Sometimes we need, we need yeah. that grounding in order to do that. Well, you know, absolutely. I mean, that's happened to me. I've definitely lost that grounding. And, um, I've also found myself getting really angry doing activism and like, wait, this wasn't the point. The point was liberation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why are we struggling to, to find joy? You know, like the, the goal is to, is a world where people are, are have liberation, experience liberation. And, and if we're constricted, then what are we doing? Yeah. You know, yeah. So, and yeah. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be angry. I want to be angry when it's, <laughs> when it's helpful, but I don't want to be tight and twisted up in that anger. You know? Right. Yeah. It's a natural response to injustice, you know, that's, that's healthy and, and good and biological. And, and I think it's there for a reason, you know, but, but how can we hold that? I think, again, in a larger frame of wholeness, you know, that it's not just getting carried away and lost in that, but that there's a time to speak up, there's a time to stand up, there's a time, um, you know, to, to be present in that kind of a way. Um, and that ultimately, perhaps our grounding comes from a deeper place, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, um, any other projects that you want to mention um, for us that that you're working on right now? I, I know that you had mentioned that you're doing text art in public spaces and museums and galleries, but um, that we can keep up with that, that some of our listeners can can look for. Yeah. Um, so I have an Instagram, um, and you can also just find all those things just by putting in my name, um, Anna Talhami. So website AnnaTalhami.com, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and because of my writing and speaking openly about how poetry and writing has helped heal me, um, I've had people ask me to work with them and not just as like teaching workshops, but work one-on-one. And that's been something I really am inviting people to participate in, which is unearthing your own story for healing. Um, and it's been really fun because lately I've been, I've had the chance to talk to a couple of psychologists about what I'm doing. And they're like, you know, that's the prescription. That's like the thing for trauma is to write about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's how we're doing it. <laughs> um, but it's so cool to hear that also in, you know, psychological and psychiatric and scientific spaces um, and academic spaces, which aren't necessarily where I gravitate towards, but um, that this is showing up and, so what I'm doing is I've been working with a bunch of people on unearthing their own stories in a creative and joyful way um, to build resilience and heal trauma um, and speak your truth. So. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, you know, thanks again for taking the time. I just wanted to say also thank you for for caring for words and and for for curating healing spaces for people through your writing and 
and for your work in peace building and bridging and and uh yeah thanks for all that you do in the world to make it better Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. Well, thank, and thanks for spending some time with me and hanging out on the internet and, and hope to uh, keep the conversation going and, and connecting in theopoetic spaces soon. Yeah, I'm really excited about this whole theopoetic space and getting to do stuff in it. So, Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank All you right. so much for having me. Yeah, peace, Anna. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also follow along with Anna's work over at AnnaTalhami.com, and you can also find her on Instagram and Facebook. You can also keep up with us on social media over at, at TheopoeticsCast, or you can tweet at me at, at TDBurnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone.